Hey, I'm Will Lavise. He's Eric Laville. You tune into Lavise and Claville, where we give it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective, because it's like that, and that's the way it is. So let's get right to this show. Uh, the Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, very, um, still, still reeling from this, you know, this issue of the murder of George Floyd. So the verdict is finally in. Uh, Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22.5 years for the murder of George Floyd. Uh, Chauvin was not remorseful, and there are still many people who feel justice wasn't fully served by the amount of time that he got. And there's also still many who feel that, uh, quite frankly, he still shouldn't have gotten any time at all. So, you know, the amount of time wasn't enough. Is it justice? Where are we at now and where are we going? I mean, Claville, you're the attorney. Uh, talk to us. I mean, is, was this enough time, 22.5 years? Is this, is this the right number? What's going on here? Explain it. Well, Will, um, to, to be honest with you, no matter how much time you got, you were going to have one side that, that was satisfied and right. the other side that's not. Um, we have to also take into consideration that this was a person that used his position of power, of trust, inflicted one of the worst types of pain on another human being. Absolutely. Death. And, yeah. and, and took his and took his life away. It was one of the most humiliating ways to die. Mm. You had another grown man begging for his life from another man who was there to protect and serve. He did it so cavalier. It As people crazy. watched. As people watched. And, and filmed. Yes. Think, yes. think about it. He literally had no sense of fear. And thank God it was for happened. Adverse, because he's being filmed, you know. And the, every time I watch it, and to be very honest with you, it was one time I, I had to turn it off. I couldn't watch it uh, again. It was just too much. Um, which I believe that the young lady that received the honorary Pulitzer Prize uh, for uh, her bravery uh, to record that, because it, without her recording, without the restraint, absolutely. Uh, and the humanity of the citizens that were there begging for the officer to please let him up over and over again. Um, it, I, this, this moment would not have come. Yeah, because because you, you had other officers who were there who were watching on, and those, those trials are coming as well. But that just reinforces the whole um, issue of in a black community, police the concept of protect and serve seems to be elusive when it comes to black and brown people because you had other officers who were there watching this on the scene. He's, like you said, he's he's being filmed doing this. And then to add insult to injury, I can tell you from a reporter's standpoint, the initial report, police report that went in, you would have thought that nothing as tragic, as violent as as inhumane had actually gone on. So yes, the filming of this is is, is critical. And now we finally have yeah. uh, the verdict, at least with uh, Chauvin, yeah. with the others to come. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you know, you, you mentioned the, um, the 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 initial police report. Right. The initial police report, like you said, if you take a look at it, 
uh, audience, just go, you know, look it up. It is one that shows that, like you said, it was nothing just happened. It was, you know, a routine stop. Somebody died and it was a resistance and that was it. Uh, even it took uh, a force, a movement of, of, of requests in order to get the police department to turn over right. additional right. information. So it's not like the police department was like, oh, you know, we got a bad officer, a bad apple. Let's cooperate right. immediately. They didn't do that. They only did it when they were held, their feet were held to the fire and they had to be accountable. Um, and one thing about this, and we're going to talk about a verdict in just a moment, but in thinking about the trial, you think about this, Will, you have every major officer within the head of those divisions, right. top to the training, to the supervisory, speak out against uh, what Chauvin did because it wasn't in line with what they do. But of course, with that policy. However, it happens all the time because there are other cases that they're looking at in which he did this same thing to other citizens. So this is something that is systemic. Uh, the department is under now federal review. So let's see if they get it right. Yeah, and, give the, and, and give the officers credit, you know, the police chief, others who, as well as other officers across the nation and across the world, frankly, who said, you know, this is this is over the line. And I think that's a point that's often missed among those who want to say that this is going overboard in terms of defund calls for defunding the police or uh, police reform. They're missing the fact that there are a lot of officers who are also talking about police reform and who have said in this particular case, this is this is over the line. And so, you know, we 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 give credit where it's due. We should give credit to those officers as well. But Absolutely. this verdict, you know, the, again, a lot of people are concerned about whether this is really the, the the right number. You know, I know that he 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 got off. He got some time served as well. I right. mean, explain what the numbers are. So, Will, let me break down the verdict for you. So he could have gotten up to 40 years for all the charges which he were convicted of. They ended up convicting him. The prosecution wanted 30 years. Right. The defense wanted probation and time served. Of course. <laughs> As you said, there were many that felt like he shouldn't have gotten time, and that right. was one of them. Uh, but also, there were, and believe it or not, there are people that believe still a very, very large percentage of individuals that believe that George Floyd was killed through a normal police stop. Mm -hmm. In other words, the officer himself should not be blamed for it. So that's a very, very high percentage. And we'll, we've talked about that in our, in our uh, Justice for George Floyd uh, series. You can go back and take a look at it uh, and see how we discuss this. But he wanted probation, time served. Prosecution wanted 30 years. Could have gotten up to 40. The judge himself, um, gave, uh, awarded, or <laughs> I'll say awarded, but handed down uh, 22 and a half years with 199 days for time served while he was in custody awaiting trial. So getting, well, let me say this, getting time served is not unusual, okay? So that's uh, something that happens quite often. So that's not the issue. The 22 and a half years if you take a look at it, he actually provided that sentence based upon the highest crime in which he was convicted. Now, of course, he was convicted of lesser and what's called lesser and included offenses, but he was sentenced at the highest crime of the um, that he was convicted of. So with that being the case, 
I think that it was quite a bit of time based upon what the, how the judge actually handed down the sentence. Could he have gotten more? The answer is yes. But I think what we should take a look at is they got to go into the details. A judge can provide a sentence without possibility of parole. You can get that. It's handed out all the time. Right. When there's no possibility of parole, your only, your only way of getting out of prison before your time served is through an appeal, which Derek Chauvin, he's going to appeal. Right. So that, that's going to happen. I, I doubt if the appellate court overturns anything. Everything was done by the book, very carefully, very methodical. Uh, hats off to the Attorney General, Attorney General Ellis, who, of course, was a former U.S. congressman. Uh, hats off to the prosecution office. Uh, this was a, a well-planned, orchestrated uh, uh, case by the prosecution. It was, it was, it was almost flawless. That's how you prosecute. Now, the other part of that is the judge did not will. The judge did not say without possibly a parole. So what does that mean? That means that Derek Chauvin is, under Minnesota law, under these uh, sentencing guidelines, he is eligible for parole after serving 15 years. He's got to serve two-thirds of the time in order to apply Right. Apply for parole. Now, so he's definitely looking at at least 15 years. Hands down. Chances are, again, being a police officer, this type of crime, but the 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 sentiment that's on both sides in the country is this is a good likelihood that after the 15 years, when he immediately becomes a his earliest eligibility, he's probably going to get parole. Would you think? I, I you know. You and I, we've talked about this, you know, offline, and I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean, if, if you take a look at the circumstance, and we actually talked a little, little bit about it during the segment, well, that was a heinous crime. Yeah. I mean, it was, can you go back and take a look at that 15 years from now and say this person deserves parole? And especially after, and, and I, I want you to talk about this, from your perspective as a journalist who's covered a lot of different stories, can you see he deserves parole after his quote-unquote condolences to the family of what he said to the parole? Well, I tell you, um, you know, that's another big issue. I mean, he was not remorseful. Zero. Uh, like you said, he offered, you know, condolences. And, and then to add to that, even his mother, who you can understand, caring, loving mother is not going to want to see their adult child go to prison. But even the mother said something to the effect that if you sentencing my son is sentencing me too. And I'm thinking, I'm when I read that, I'm like, okay, that's, that's going to go over real well with the uh, Floyd family because they have been sentenced too. In fact, they've been sentenced to death. Uh, he, he, she can at least go and visit her son. They can't go and visit their loved one. So that type of lack of remorse, yeah, I, I think it's possible that it can have an impact. But we also live in an age where time goes by really fast. People's memories change very quickly. And so you're talking about 15 years from now. Uh, who knows what the country is going to be like with our era that we're in right now with fake news and even things that we know are factual. People are putting into question and and, um, creating doubt. 
who knows what it will be about, like in you know in fifteen in fifteen years. So, you know, I, I always go back to the Rodney King trial and saw how brutally beat down he was, yeah. and then it went to a jury and and they they were all exonerated and it said so you know no one thought that that would be the case but yes the country has moved forward in many ways the fact that this verdict was even able to happen is is a statement in and of itself of how the country has moved forward but we also have a way of taking two steps forward and taking three or four steps back too. So we don't know. I, I'm not sure how it's going to look like in 15 years, but um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not t- um, terribly optimistic about, you know, where we'll be at at that point and yeah. how well people really, you know, how, how they'll feel about it. Hopefully he will express some real true, honest remorse and, and come to grips with the, the, the level of violence and inhumanity that he displayed on that, uh, in that moment. Yeah, well, you know, you, you mentioned a very good point. You know, 15 years from now, what was the world going to look like? 2036. Mm-hmm. Okay, 2036. Okay. Uh, that is a few years away from where a possibility where I can retire, <laughs> you know. But who knows? Because there's, there is some... Um, well, I'm with you. I'm with you with that, boy. You know? <laughs> it doesn't you mean know, we won't be doing anything. It just means that we won't have to go out every day. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah, we'll definitely stay active. But go ahead. Absolutely. So, but again, I said, who knows after some of this legislation that's going to be, that's going to reframe <laughs> and revamp right. retirement uh, time. But, um, you know, 15 years from now, you know, there's going to be a lot of changes in the world. But one thing I can say, you mentioned Rodney King case. Uh, I thought about other famous trials. Um, the world is, the, the, I mean, the, the world is a different place. Rodney King cannot happen today with an acquittal. It wouldn't happen. Yeah. You know, Will, it, it, it couldn't happen. That was too much evidence, right? But that was something that was accepted in L.A. police at that time. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it was accepted uh, decades before that. Uh, when you talk about the Rampart scandal, which also happened around the time of Rodney King. Well, uh, you know, what you remember, but, but think about it. This trial with Derek Chauvin, I mean, one of the key issues was whether the child should have been moved to a different community. That is what happened yeah. with Rodney King. He was moved from L.A. to uh, yeah. Simi Valley, which was a, a definitely a community that was more favorable to police. So absolutely, when you add those kinds of elements and we see the resurgence of a blatant open racism, because, you know, I say resurgence not to be uh, naive that racism has gone away or gone asleep. It hasn't. But when you see this openness about it and how it's being carried on in a younger generation, it leaves room for doubt to say, well, if a trial like this, if this trial, the Derek Chauvin trial, had been moved to a different community that was more favorable in terms of racial makeup, who's to know what the verdict would have been, whether it would have been as emphatic as, as this one. Absolutely. You know, and I always think, you know, Will, when you, when you made that point, when you gave that point about the trial being moved, 
you know, again, I, I give hats off to the, the AG's office uh, in Minnesota, to the prosecution. I mean, they really held to their guns because, of course, that was one of the motions to move the trial as well uh, to a, um, a police-friendly um, or defense-friendly venue. Right. So, you know, it, it, it's there are a lot of things that come into play before trial actually takes place, which is why I tell people, you know, in, you know, in trial, you know, everything, you win your case, you win or lose your case in what's called pre-trial. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever happens pre-trial, that's, that's the only thing that can come into trial. Mm-hmm. You know, and trial itself is just a well-rehearsed dance. So what the prosecution did, again, we cannot overlook and overstate the job that they did to present the case in a way that really it presented itself. But we know how these narratives can change because... Right. Again, I mentioned those polls, Will, where you have a certain segment of the population that believe that Derek Chauvin did nothing wrong. You know, and that population is overwhelmingly white American, overwhelmingly Republican as well, and overwhelmingly an older white American. So when you take a look at the standards that that were set uh, years ago, they're still holding on to that standard. But, you know, but I, I do have, I do have a lot of optimism for the future. Uh, and I'll give you the reason why. Uh, okay. one, of the, one of the um, descendants of the Supreme Court Justice, Justice Tony, that actually decided, uh, was one of the justices that decided the Dred Scott case, which was the legal pen that set off the Civil War, or legal shot. Uh, he actually wrote the decision that, that said, there are no rights that any Black man has that any white man is bound to respect. Right. I mean, so that was he didn't have to write that because the case was actually overturned on a procedural uh, process, not a subsidy. So he didn't have to write anything. But he wrote that for a reason. All right. In order to make to make a to make a statement that the white man is above any rights that any black man has. It's definitely a caste system. It's definitely a a pecking order. Absolutely. Black man is at the bottom. Right. Absolutely. So one of his descendants actually attended a um, a session where he and the descendants of 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 the Plessy case right. okay. actually came together and talked about a lot of different things uh, about racial reconciliation and things of that nature. And Will, one thing that he he said, he said, I have, and he's he's a retired advertisement executive and been around the country and the world. Okay. And, you know, he has access to a lot of places, right, uh, that the average American doesn't have. And he made the statement. He said, what is your, what is your uh, viewpoint of the future? Because of him being the descendant of the justice that wrote that. He made this statement. He said, I have, I don't have a lot of hope for people in my generation. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. He said, but for my grandchildren, not his children, but he said, for my grandchildren, I have a lot of hope and optimism that things will get become more equal because, of course, that was one of the issues of the Plessy versus Ferguson case. So, you know, in listening to that, you have to think about that. You know, someone that says that, that comes from a lineage right. of, of holding those beliefs and a person who is able to keep those beliefs in law which means those behaviors continue on and are perpetuated. And it took a civil war to stop. 
right? Those were, right. It, it took a war of thousands and thousands and thousands of people to die to get it. So we'll... Well, I, I see your point. I mean, because he is representative of it. I mean, because clearly his ancestor would not have made that statement. And so for, for us to come generations forward and he's making that statement, I, you know, I'd love to share that optimism. I, I, I do hope as well that with our grandchildren uh, and going forward, that there will be more equality, justice, more respect across the board, that this, this insanity of racism, that just because of your, your skin color determines your value and your, your place in society is really just is illogical. It's, it's madness is not, not rooted in any real science or it's not godly. What people do strongly hold to it. And it is really is troubling as we see the amount of racism that's rising up among and being carried forward among younger generations. So when you talk about the future, one of the things that we have that's pending now is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021. Civil Rights Act looking at reforming uh, police, but it's very much stuck. It's very much uh, being debated. It's very much not really moving forward. I mean, so that's another reason there to to be less than optimistic about the future. Can you what what can you say about that act and where we're at and what's the likelihood of being it passed? So, so Will, that's a very good point because. Right now, the George Floyd uh, Crime and Policing Act itself is one that is pretty much stall. You know, it's, it's one that had a lot of hope. I right. mean, people marched forward across the country. I mean, people will sacrifice. You had people traveling to and fro. I had uh, young people going to this place, this place. They were galvanizing around this issue of, of, of policing and, and really accountability both community and policing, um, and all of a sudden it's all. This right? is why young people went to the streets. You know, young people Absolutely. of all different uh, backgrounds, races, went to the streets to, to say, this is enough. And and now here we are, it's stalling. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and look, unfortunately, Will, I mean, this is something where um, there is a lack of trust brewing from the young uh, progressive, what they're called progressive, they're called young liberals, however you want to uh, uh, address it. But the young people that are going to the polls, voting for individuals that say, hey, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this, we can do that. Um, you know, hands down, they're, they're saying, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. You know, if the political process is for me, I don't know if we can make change through the political process. You're saying vote, vote for change, but we're not getting the change. Right. I think what's missing is that, you know, where we grew up, we understood political style speeches to be just that. They start and stop at the stump. Okay? Right. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they are. You know, but the real meat to policy is behind the scene. The real meat to policy is dealing and working with legislators. Um, and again, we, we, we talked about protesting and policy, lobbying and protesting. Where does it all meet? That's that That's that circle that if the protesters, if, if the community, if the grassroots organizations can grasp that lobbying part right. from protests, put lobby in the middle, and then policy, 
and then just keep that circle going. I mean, but what is the but what is the leverage that moves when you're putting putting that policy and lobbying piece in it? What is the leverage that moves these politicians to do the right thing? Because taking to the streets has its place, right? But what often happens and what we've seen is that as different elements raise and hit the streets and increase the level of violence, right? Whereas essentially undermining the peaceful, the peaceful protesters, right? As the violence increases, what happens is now both sides, right? Start saying, well, we've got to have law and order. We've got to have law and order. And so what is the leverage to lobbying and putting that piece together that moves these politicians? Absolutely. Well, the piece is, Will, hey, if you want our vote, then this is what has to happen. And you have to have a mechanism in place that holds them to it, period. That's it. And that well, me- that's, what, that's what a lot of people are asking. Okay, well, what yeah. is that mechanism? Because a lot of the people who are voted in place right now, so Biden, our president, very much voted in place because folks are saying, you, we want you to make this change. Now, he is very much, as you, as you just said, we're very much in a, in a stalemate when it comes yeah. to, you know, George Floyd justice and police and that. Yeah. And, and, and Will, what it is is that you have to have someone that is connected in that process, in that process, mm-hmm. that basically says, listen, we're not going to be bought, which is a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to do because, yeah. you know, lobbying is where you can be bought. And that's where the buying takes place uh, all around. So you have to have someone who is connected to the community and says, I'm doing this for the community's sake. Now, that's the power. Now, I'm making that statement, and here's an example. That's okay. the power of persons in, the, in, the, in what's called the classical civil rights movement. They, man, they weren't getting paid money to march the streets and register people to vote and put their lives on the line. You know, right. they were helping each other out. You could stay at my house. We're going to, you know, cook here. We're going to do this. We're going to get up and train here. People were working together, uh, galvanizing the student movement core and all those. Uh, the, 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 the summer of, of, of what uh, was it, 1964, uh, where individuals helped and, and other, other summers where they were pushing this agenda. I right. think it was 68, 68. They were pushing this agenda helping each other out, moving forward, ensuring that persons were registered, persons were part of the process. They had politicians on on board after the fact, but it was the community. So is is that spirit still here? Well, that's that's the question that I raise, and that's the concern that I have is that it's not still here, and I'll tell you why. You're talking about a generation, 1960s, 70s that had more trust in institutions that believed that came up believing and still having that trust that if we push against the system if we do things the right way that the system people will do the right thing politicians will do the right thing this generation that has come up has seen the economy uh, uh, not work for them has seen constant war from 9-11 to the present day. 
this generation doesn't have that same type of trust and faith in institutions. You see, for example, you could just look at the, the numbers. I don't have the stats, but the number of people who affiliated religiously and, and went to church and had trust in church versus now the number of people who have abandoned the church are now going to church on a regular basis. It's because people don't trust institutions. And a lot of people, it's not that they're turning their back on God. They're still considering themselves to be spiritual. They're still considering themselves to be believing in God, but they're turning it back on institutions. So yeah. that's the challenge that I have is that that civil rights movement generation had trust in institutions. This generation does not. So how can you tell a generation that doesn't trust institutions that they got to push the institution to do the right thing? And they already don't believe that it is going to do the right thing. That's that's the concern that I have. Yeah. And, Will, you're exactly right. I share the same sentiments. uh, But that's something that we got to figure out. But I am hopeful. I am optimistic. um, And I believe that we're going in in, in a trajectory, in a way, we are, we're looking at now what is equitable and equal across the board as, as it relates to participation in the process. Now, well, I, guess that, I guess that's why you're an attorney and I'm a journalist attorney. You all, <laughs> you all always think you can win any case. And journalists, you know, we're just naturally skeptical so and, and suspect. But uh, <laughs> hey, well, we'll see. You keep pushing until you lose. So <laughs> you're exactly right. Look. That's why I appreciate you, my friend. And that's why I believe that LaVisa Cleville is one of the best podcasts out there. And and people on these issues, real talk, real brothers. And if you continue to uh, support us, continue to follow, like, and share. Uh, If you like what you hear, comment. And again, we wouldn't be here without you. We thank you for your support. So it's like that. And that's the way it is. We'll see you next time.